0: Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host Andy Hagans and today we're discussing a really important topic, very top of mind in our industry right now and that is transparency in the alternatives industry and in all these alternatives products. And joining me today, I have Stacy Chitty who is co-founder of Blue Vault. Stacy, welcome to the show. Thank you Andy. Glad to be with you. And you know I know a lot of our listeners and viewers are probably already using Blue Vault but but probably not all of them. So why don't we start there? Could you tell us more about Blue Vault and how you fit into the alternatives industry? Sure, sure. So I'll I'll do a brief
2: recap going back to when we were founded in 2009 and really we were founded just to provide better transparency to financial advisors about the actual performance of non-traded REITs. Uh, That's really all we set out to do back then. So we created, uh, through some uh, collection of data metrics, um, we created a one-page at-a-glance sheet with lots of pretty colors and charts and graphs that was easy for an advisor to look at, glance at, and uh, get kind of the updated information about the performance of the REIT. Uh, so that they could do their own analysis. It might be something, a refresher for them before they meet a client. Um, And uh, slowly but surely, it kind of caught on, and the market started changing, and um, other products like BDCs and then interval funds uh, started coming out, and people were utilizing, advisors were utilizing other products. And so here we are today in 2022. We cover I guess six or seven different alternative investment product types,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and we have a database that is searchable and filterable. You can query and compare and contrast, and you can do it across product types. And you can do it again with literally dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of of data metrics, performance metrics. Though we're, we're nothing to do with what the prospectus says what we're going to do, what we hope to do, what we anticipate doing, it's all what we've actually done. Mm -hmm. So that's what we do. And uh, so we hope that that is, that's one of a kind of a three pronged leg uh, of services that we provide, but that that's the way it all started. And, and that's uh, where we, we hope that we can play a role in protecting, protecting the investor Mm -hmm. uh, by showcasing performance of investment managers
1: so your your user your end user is financial advisors rias uh but but you kind of view your even though they're not your user the goal is to help investors essentially the goal is to protect
2: investors absolutely that's for first and foremost protect investors okay um now you know there's only so much you can do so everybody Mm -hmm. tries to play a small part in that we're just trying to play our small role in in doing that, we just felt like that, you know, in the past uh, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty five years ago, when an advisor sold uh, a limited partnership, or when they they sold a, even a non traded REIT, uh, and uh, the 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 advisor after the sale, a lot of times they lost track of how the the actual offering was performing. Sure, it could have been. The investment manager didn't make it. It could have been that the wholesaler changed and the new wholesaler didn't have a relationship uh, with the advisor. It could be that he stopped doing business with the company and the wholesaler stopped coming by. And, or even if the wholesaler did come by, he, he perhaps only got uh, part of the story of the performance. And so we felt like that the advisor was was oftentimes left out of the conversation. And we were just simply trying to uh, inform the advisor more, keep them better informed on a continual basis uh, so that they knew how the the uh, product was performing on behalf of the investor.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, th- that reminds me of some research that you all produced with Cerulean Associates And our listeners, we actually had an episode, oh, maybe 10 or so episodes ago. So listeners can go back and listen to to that episode where we talked about that research in depth. But, uh, you know, one piece of that that I think is pertinent is more and more advisors are investing into alternatives. Um, They're more comfortable with that. But at the same time, there's still a very large information gap. I mean, to put it frankly, I mean, I'm not even talking about the retail investor. I'm talking about with advisors, even RAs, even family offices. Um, yeah, still a very large. how big do you think that information gap is? do you see do you think it's it's closing because even though the education is improving and I hope that our show and Al I hope that's a part of that, at the same time, there's more and more types of products coming out as well. So it feels like the job, is also getting bigger. Are we gaining ground? Are we losing ground? Are we treading water? What do you think? No, we're definitely
2: gaining ground. So we're moving in the right direction. Or what I like to say a lot of times, we're we're actually moving the ball down the field. Yeah. Uh, it, it's slow, um, but we are moving the ball down the field.
1: So we're keeping in between the tackles, picking up two yards at a time. That's what you're That's telling
2: right. That's <laughs> right. That's right. That's and, right. And hopefully not losing yardage along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but but you're right. The the biggest issue, and, and th- this is us asking in the Cerule Blue Vault survey, mm-hmm. we asked advisors, what's the biggest issue that, that prevents other advisors, you or other advisors, from using alts or incorporating alts? And uh, it's the educational gap. There's just an overall lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that is a little strange to me. I've been in this industry since 1997. And I've always, because I've been on this side of the table, things like mutual funds and ETFs and stocks and bonds, that th- th- those types of issues were more, more complicated to me. It's just simply because that's not what I, what we did, you sure. know. But evidently, if you gauge the marketplace, most all advisors know what a mutual fund is and, and how yeah. it behaves and what, you know, tax implications and stocks sure. and bonds and interest rates and, whatever else, they they haven't grown up understanding alternative investments and the benefits that uh, alts can bring to the table. Sure, there are risks, just like there are risks in any type of uh, securities offering or investment, uh, but there's no no doubt that we've got our work cut out for us to try and catch up Uh, with the whole educational game. And there are so many more resources today Mm -hmm. uh, to help advisors do that than there were even 10 years ago. It's just, it's really amazing. And so I don't think it's going to take a long period of time. And you're right, more advisors are uh, incorporating and utilizing alts uh, than ever before. Uh, But there's still, still, most advisors don't. And, but it's, it's trending upwards. And so, you know, there's a lot of theories also about what's going to happen over the next five and 10 years and how that's all going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as far, as far as we're concerned, it's, it, it's the same today as it was 20 years ago and 50 years ago. And the name of the game is diversification. So the primary benefit that you get from alternative investments is diversification or, uh, non-correlation uh, correlated to the market, less correlation to the market. Sure. Uh, so we, we feel that, now you get, there are other benefits too, but to us, that, that's probably the the largest benefit. Now, then you gotta go into, okay, well, wh- you know, what do I use? What type of all? And who do I use? Who's the, wh- what product sponsor or investment manager do I choose? How do I know I can trust them? Uh, how do I know that they've got the, the investor's interest uh, at heart and and those are additional questions um, mm-hmm. but one of the things you can always do is you can look at at past performance uh even though it doesn't guarantee anything for the future it is an indicator uh, and that's one of the things that you can see if you subscribe to blue vaults research mm-hmm. for example you can see what these investment managers have done in the past and what they're doing currently and it, it's an indication it gives you an idea of
1: uh, the uh, the talents and the abilities of the investment manager. Sure. So, you think when an when an RIA, let's say, starts investing in alternatives or starts placing you know client capital and alternatives, are are they typically interested in one product type or one segment specifically? Or are they more looking at the alternatives world and then sort of selecting within that? Like, like are they interested in non-traded REITs? And so they're subscribing to Blue Vault and then they kind of, you know, maybe they start to get more comfortable with BDCs later or do they just hear, I got to be in an alts? And so, you know, they look into it. Yeah.
2: yeah, you know, that is a great question. And I'll tell you that I've got a little bit of insight on that. And uh, the the insight that I have is, is a little different than what I had thought it would be. Um, So what I have noticed is that if you speak to an RIA um, and they're dipping their toe into the water, the ALT water, they're doing it typically because they have found out some information about a particular product type, whether it be a REIT or BDC or an interval fund or whatever. And they know a little bit about that. Whereas I would have maybe thought that, you know, shows how much I know, but I would have thought they would have said, you know, alts, I need to incorporate alts. Now let me look at everything. Let me go do a deep dive into everything. And I don't really think that's the way it happens. I think it's right. They've, they've met someone, they've read something. Uh, they mm-hmm. finally gave a wholesaler an opportunity to come by and talk to them. And the wholesalers talking to them about one particular product. So they become a little bit more informed about that product and that's where they feel most comfortable. Now, when they do that, then it, it may expand to other areas, other product types. But I think it really kind of starts, most of the time it starts with 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 one uh, type mm-hmm. of product. And I guess you would have to also say that that's typically the REIT structure uh, right? because you do have uh, some larger institutional players who've entered the space that are raising hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and that money primarily is being invested in real estate. Of course, advisors probably understand real estate better than they they understand oil and gas or better than they understand credit. So I think that's one of the more logical places for them to start. I think that's where, and REITs do raise more capital during the year than BDCs or Interval Funds or other alternative structures.
1: Sure. And, and, you know, obviously a lot of advisors or clients are already invested into REITs, publicly traded REITs. So, you know, there's even just a, l- a little bit of familiarity about REITs. Yep. Uh, and now we're seeing the trend of publicly traded REITs going private. Um, and so, you know, just in the REIT world overall, it, it seems like we there could be a circumstance where there is less information And transparency available in 2024 than there was in, let's say, 2019. Do you think that's a concern at all? You know, from the investor perspective, because I mean, there's some sectors now where there there are no longer publicly traded REITs where there used to be.
2: Well, to the extent that that's true, Andy, I would be very surprised that there there are sectors that are not represented. in the publicly traded circles, uh, so for example, from from where we sit, there are sectors that have traditionally not been uh, not been available to the retail type of investor
1: mm-hmm. that
2: are available today. So a great example is self storage. Uh, just has not been. It's not like office or retail or multifamily, right? Uh, but it but it's it, but it's it's coming. It's 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 a it's a growing sector. It's a booming sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, industrial is doing very well too, but industrial's been around for a long time. Another sector that's fairly new is uh single family rental. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you if your listeners follow uh, you know real estate much at all, they probably are aware that there's an overall housing shortage in our
1: country. <laughs> yeah, you could and say that again. Yeah uh, it
2: blows my mind. I can't believe there's a housing shortage in our country, but there, literally mm-hmm. uh, millions and millions of of homes. Or, or uh, livable uh, structures a shortage there, and um,
1: I think five million is the term that I've he- you know heard from the National Association yeah. of Realtors. Yeah. yeah,
2: and evidently you don't fix that in a year. That that kind of stuff takes years and years. So some some people, some in, investment managers are going the single family rental uh, route, and you you can't argue necessarily with their argument. It, mm-hmm. These are individuals who. But, you know, they can't afford to buy a home, uh, but they don't want to live in an apartment. They've got kids. Right. Their school districts, they want to be in neighborhoods with uh, pools, but they can't afford it. So they rent. And um, so there's a uh, there's an argument there. But back, back to your initial question. I don't think that there's a trend towards less transparency. I really believe the trend is, is towards more and more transparency. Now, you know, what you public reach that are going private. I, I don't, I'm not an expert on that. I don't know why they would do that. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm not, i am not i am not aware that that's a, either a trend. Well,
1: I, I think, know, so. yeah. And I mean, I, maybe I, maybe it's not some game changer, but I, I think the issue is just, um, You know, the publicly traded REITs, if they're trading at a discount, then there's really economically, you know, no reward for going public anymore. And so that
2: could be. Yeah, yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. That would make sense. Uh, So let's let's talk about. So you mentioned six or seven. I think I I think I know about at least four types of alternatives that Blue Vault covers. So non-traded REITs, mm -hmm. uh, the BDCs, Interval Funds. As well as private placement offerings. Am I missing any, are there a couple more?
2: Yeah, there's 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 a couple more. One is a tender share offering.
1: Okay. Another is a,
2: uh, a closed in fund. Another is a uh, preferred share offering. That that one is kind of interesting to me. So these are uh, these are publicly traded companies, publicly traded REITs that are offering. And I'm not I'm not saying they have to be publicly, but typically they are publicly traded REITs who register a, a a preferred share class. Mm. Um, and they, they raise money, they raise capital in that preferred share class. And again, there's sure. all kinds of good arguments for for why that's a good thing. And I'm assuming there's arguments for why that's a bad thing. And I'm not here to, <laughs> I don't know the answer to, uh, sure. to those things. We just report the facts. In that fact, that's a, uh, uh, something I wanted to just make sure that your listeners knew. We don't give opinions about performance. We just report okay. the facts. We gather the information, the the metrics, the data from the SEC website, mm-hmm. and we just provide it. Uh, we're we're actually offering just a service to the advisor by doing. I see. That. Um, but we don't really give our opinion about. Let the market matters. decide,
1: right? You you know.
2: Let, yeah. Let the market decide. I mean, you know, two. The main thing is, is I just um, I don't want to be. Um, uh, this is this is uh, convoluted. I don't want to get off on this too much, but you know, n- nobody really knows uh, when you're talking about markets and mm-hmm. investments. I just have this uh, underlying, uh, I guess, idea that you know you don't really know. Nobody really knows, and of course, but well, there's a lot of people who uh, that think they know, or there's a lot of people who try to make <laughs> others think that they know. And sure. I just don't want to be one of those. So. We, we just simply want to provide the facts and, and let you you decide.
1: Understood. So you're not a guru, you are an information right. provider. Yeah, I understand. Well, but I do want, I guess I do want a little bit of your subjective opinion, Stacey. I mean, where your firm is positioned and given the nature of what you do, um, I think it's an interesting perspective because you're not just you're not just working with one product type. You're working with all of these. I think, I think we mentioned seven different product structures within the world of alternatives. And I I do think that, you know, you mentioned going through the sec filings and basically collecting that information and publishing it. I do think there are still some differences within those in regards to how much information is available or, or how transparent they are. So, you know, why don't we just go through them one by one, even even just briefly, okay. I just want I want your take on how each of these uh, segments are how well they're doing in terms of communicating, conveying information, being transparent, educating, so on and so forth. Let's start with non-traded reITs. Um, you know do you feel that non-traded reITs are are doing a pretty good job communicating conveying, being transparent with advisors?
2: Well, the answer is yes. Short answer is yes. I do think that they are transparent. Uh, I do think that they're, uh, they do a good job of communicating. Now, could they do better? Yes. Uh, You know, we all could. Um, I think you'd probably have to look beyond, beyond that answer, Andy. I think you, what you have to do is look at the individual uh, investment manager. Some do a better job than others. Uh, I will tell you that we've, in the case of REITs and BDCS, we cover every single offering, non-traded offering that there is, and so okay. we know exactly how these uh, entities are performing. Mm-hmm. Um, now they don't have to tell us more than once a quarter,
1: but they do have to tell us once a quarter. Um, so there's you're more you're saying there's you know differences between from issuer to issuer, sponsor to sponsor. You know, they're all doing the legal minimum, I guess, that's required by the SEC, yeah. but there are others that are going above and beyond in various ways. You know, that's where you see the comparative difference.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's some that, that, that do a better, right. Yeah. Uh, I think that they, uh, I think they, they, they have a communication, uh, how I say it they, they have a, um. They have a division of communication to mm-hmm. individual investors mm-hmm. they also have a, a, a line a communication line to advisors as well sure. and uh, and typically as you probably are aware they don't communicate with the investor um, and not communicate that same information to the advisor So the they they obviously want the advisor to know what they're communicating so but but they do communicate directly to the investor. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, monthly statements or quarterly statements, whichever one they send out, probably monthly. It used to be a combination of the two, but I think most folks have have uh, most investment managers have settled in on it monthly. Um, you know, but the biggest the biggest trend in that world right now of REITs is these perpetual offerings. Uh, at one point, the offering which they call today a life cycle. Offering Mm -hmm. because it had a life. It's it had a beginning and it had an end. Sure. And and it's interesting. It's ironic where we are today uh, because we've gone. We've done a. We've done a three hundred and sixty loop on on uh, this whole life cycle thing because at at one point back in the eighties and nineties, limited partnerships were being sold. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the investments in these portfolios were primarily real estate. And these limited partnerships just would seem like they would go on forever. And uh, then the investor would end up finding out that they weren't, they didn't perform. They weren't performing or they didn't perform. And so not only do they hold that money forever, they didn't end up performing. I'm not saying in every case, obviously. Sure. And So there was a movement in this industry is to give the advisor an, an idea that, hey, it, you got to have a, an exit strategy here. What's sure. your exit strategy? We don't like this carrying on and on and on. So uh, non-traded REITs, the first one was uh, registered in 1990, by the way. And that's when a non-traded REIT started raising capital. And for the first 10 to 12 years, there were only two or three different companies doing that. Um, but they they typically had more of a a view of, uh, this, we're going to end this thing. And, and Mm it, Mr. Mr. Investor, you're going to get all your money back. What you do with it at that time is your deal, but we're going to give you your money back at some point, either we're going to sell the portfolio or, uh, the, the kind of the new movement was to list on uh, an exchange. Sure. And thereby providing liquidity. So that was really important. A liquidity strategy an exit strategy very that's
1: that's funny that's just interesting because that's going back to the trend i was talking about some of these publicly traded reits are going private again but anyway i mean so that that makes sense is and and you know a lot of these alternatives bdcs or you're you're meant talking about reits right now some investors historically had a bad experience uh, a poor user experience shall we say with them and i i think you're right that in, in some respects it kind of gave alternatives uh, almost a bad reputation but um you know the next generation of these products appear to me and uh, you know a lot of other smart folks that I talk to I mean they really are better for investors doesn't guarantee that they're all going to perform doesn't guarantee they're all going to you know yeah. return double digits but things are generally moving in the right direction so let's talk about interval right. funds because that's another one where there's been A lot of momentum, you know, a a lot of steam. You know, how do interval funds compare in terms of their communication? You know, advisor understanding, uh, transparency. You know, how do they compare to non-traded REITs?
2: Well, again, it's uh, they're public offerings, so they have they're required to report to the SEC. The difference is between interval funds and and non-traded REITs is that they don't have to report on a quarterly basis. They only have Mm -hmm. to report on a semi-annual basis. The other thing is it's not a January 1st, July 1st filing deal. So the filings are literally, I think our research team told me one time that uh, 10 out of the 12 months, there are interval interval fund filings. And uh, of course, there's a lot more interval funds than there are uh, REITs, uh, non-traded REITs. Um, so there's, there's there, there is the obligation to file. They just don't have to file as often. The other big difference between a REIT and an interval fund is that their interval funds where they get the name is that at different intervals, there are, there's a liquid, more liquidity. Sure. And so that hints the name at, Mm. at certain intervals. So, uh, there is more liquidity And they are also investing uh, quite differently than a non-trader REIT would. A non-trader REIT is typically buying hard real estate, uh, buildings or portfolios of buildings. An interval fund is in some cases investing also, or in most cases, also investing in other things, including including trading instruments. So they're more into the market, which allows them to have a little bit more liquidity uh, by doing that as well. Some people love the interval fund structure. Uh, some people uh, like the reach structure I think the reach structure is a little bit more of a simple, is a simpler uh, mm-hmm. structure to understand. Uh, we're actually having a webinar sometime coming up the next uh, month about uh, interval funds. What what do they invest in? And and I I can sit here and tell you right now we cover them. And all of our research and research team knows what they are investing in, but I don't. I don't really know what they're investing in. So, well,
1: that is so, Stacy. That, that this is what I was getting at with the question is all these alternatives. It sounds right, to right. me like like the non-traded REITs are a little bit uh, more communicative or a little bit easy to understand, or there's just a little bit more transparency there. Do- doesn't mean anything negative about issuers of interval funds but they're simpler. They're a little, little easier to understand. Um, whereas, well, well I,
2: I think they're easier to understand. I'm not saying there's a uh, there's less transparency in the interval fund world. I'm not saying that. In fact, okay. there, there could be more. It's just that I the interval funds have only been out since about 2016. Mm-hmm. I've been in the REIT business since 1998. Yep. So I just know more about REITs than I do interval funds. I'm just not an expert. But, but as far as the investors go, they probably can go find out just as much, if not more information about interval funds. Um, and I'm assuming that the investment managers do a good job of communicating. There's always a uh, one or two sure. that do a good job, but I'm, I think they do that. I think that when you, based on what you just said, talking about the simplicity to mm-hmm. me, it's just a, it's just an easier, uh it's an easier story to understand. You, you mm-hmm. take money in a re you go buy a building and you manage the building, you collect rent, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: okay, versus what an interval fund does, it seems to be a little bit more complicated, at least to me, Mm -hmm. because I think they're investing in more. But you, you could argue that investing in more or different is better because you're more diversified. You're not just in hard real estate. So you could argue that as well.
1: Yeah, so I mean, certainly, certainly. I mean, they're just a different animal, right? And and
2: they, yeah, they they both have their plucks, I think.
1: And the inter- intermittent liquidity is a tremendous, um, you know, value add. Um, I think to the alternatives marketplace, and I, I think that's another, you know, kind of trend that we're seeing: intermittent liquidity yeah. products. But yeah. I want to move on to private placement offerings okay. because I know that's a newer area, of folk. I mean, I don't know how new, but wasn't in the original, you know, sectors that you all covered. And and really it's only been in the last five Couple or so years. years that they have really, you know, hugely grown. Yeah. Um, and, and, and honestly on this show, that's mainly we, we cover private placement offerings more than anything else. You know, oh, you like, Okay. Yeah, we, know we, yeah. we, yeah, we like to, yeah, we like to talk about non-traded REITs, BDCs, interval funds, all of these products. Um, but I think we've had more sponsors on, from you know five hundred and six C sponsors for private placement offerings mm-hmm. than anything else, any other type of guest on the show. So yeah, I'm familiar with that world, but but it's very different from that perspective of collecting data and uh, in, in respect to what Blue Vault does. Yep. So what what's been your experience working with the private placement offering issuers, and you know how how do they compare with you know non-traded REITs or some of these other structures?
2: How do they compare in, in what you're talking about in, in what area? In how terms
1: of you know how you're able to collect information, um, oh, okay. you know, yeah. how how easy is that information for you to get, you know, how, how communicative have you found the issuers or sponsors to be, and so on.
2: Okay. So it's a it's a well, it's it's two different worlds, first mm-hmm. of all. That's how that's how different uh, the information flow is. So with a private offering, and again, hence the name, they're private. And part of being private is, is you don't have to disclose. Uh, you don't have to file uh, publicly with the SEC, uh, your performance, what you're doing, how you do it, you know, that those kind of things. Now, you can communicate with your investors, and I'm assuming that all of these companies do um, exactly what their obligations are. Frankly, I don't know what their obligations are as far mm-hmm. as communicating to those investors, but they certainly don't have to report somewhere give me information about how they're doing okay sure. now we're working on that we're, we're we're trying to improve that because there is a when i say lack of transparency i don't mean it to sound like it's it it's it's all bad it's just the nature of, of a private offering is there's not as much information flow because you don't file publicly so if you want to get information uh Uh, about these offerings, then you, um, uh, you have to, you're, you're completely dependent upon the product sponsor, investment manager, providing that information to you. Okay. So whereas for Blue Vault, we could go to a public document and we get all kinds of information about REITs and BDCs and Envil funds Mm -hmm. and some of the other product types. We can't do that with private offerings. So how do we collect some of the data that we do collect? We, we collect it by going straight to the straight to the uh, product sponsor or the investment manager, which which opens up another can of potentially uh, slimy worms. And that is that <laughs> they're very concerned about why you're even asking for the information. Sure. Uh, they have to be very protective about that. Well, all yeah. we're trying to do is provide greater transparency in our marketplace, uh, which means to industry professionals, financial advisors. Okay. We're not trying to provide any information to the investing public. Uh, That's not our model. Number one, we wouldn't want to do that. So we're just trying to gather information from these product sponsors that we can, we can, uh, relay to the professional financial advisor Mm -hmm. so that he or she can be better informed about the performance. And that's really what we're focused on the performance. So, what an investment manager says they're going to do in a private place, but memorandum, it doesn't really, that's not really where we live. Uh, we just care about, are they going to do what they say they're going to do? Sure. And so that's how we try to track performance. Now, um, because we do all the things that we do at Blue Vault, tracking data on private offerings has taken to some degree a backseat. We just are... There's a lack of resources, mm-hmm. but uh, that's very, not it okay.
1: sounds like that'd be very labor intensive, frankly, it's, especially making sure all that data would be like apples to apples, so to speak. You know, yes,
2: uh, yes, that's that is that is the case. Yeah. Uh, so, to give you an example, when someone files with the SEC, or, or there's a REIT. And they file their MFFO two different ways. Blue Vault can take that and we can uh, we can uh, analyze it and then report it uh, on an apples to apples comparison. So we can change it so that things are apples to apples. But you you can't really do that with private data um, mm-hmm. unless the sponsor is willing to give you all that. And we don't get that detailed of information. From the investment manager of private offerings. So what do we get? There's about twelve to fourteen different metrics mm-hmm. that we we ask for, and in most cases, we receive. Some product sponsors don't want to provide the information. Um, and some of them don't want to do it. You know there's a variety of reasons. Um, my opinion is is that there there's not really usually any good reason not to provide the information um and so so
1: do more uh sponsors of private placement offerings participate or do more elect to not more participate participate. okay so you do so most sponsors are willing to share that information okay that's interesting yeah
2: good question most of them are but they weren't initially Andy, because they, they, they 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 had never been asked by someone for this information Sure. So Blue Lock comes along and starts asking the question. They're like, "Whoa, wait, wait, talking my this is private." <laughs> well, we know it is, but let me let me tell you what we're trying to do with it. We're just trying to create better transparency, protect investors, help advisors, and help you guys because we believe the better transparency, the more the transparency, the better. In every across the board, um, there's no exceptions to that rule. We d- we don't believe. So the more information that we can we can provide. So, but but just to be clear, these, at at, the, at least at this point these product sponsors, investment managers, they're not giving us the detailed financial information that they would if they were providing it if they were a public offering and they were filing with the SEC. It's not to that level at right now. It's also important to point out that they could file voluntarily. So just because they don't have to file doesn't mean that they that they they can't file. And some of them seems to be a little bit of a trend where some of these investment managers are electing to file publicly because they have nothing to hide and they want to show uh, uh, the industry and uh, investors to the, to the degree that an investor knows how to go find that information, uh, what they're doing and how they're doing. So we we hope, actually, that more and more sponsors will elect to do that. But to the degree that they don't, what we're doing is, is is gathering the information, or at least some of the information ourselves, and we're aggregating that data. We're putting it in our database so that you can cross-reference, compare, contrast, filter, so that an advisor can find out what's available to him, uh, what, what what's out there that I don't know about. That I could be using what sectors? Uh, I've used multifamily, but I didn't know there was, there was industrial. I didn't know there was retail. So, an uh, advisor's able to look and into the Blue Vault database and uh, uh, query a lot more information that is typically available to them.
1: Got it. So the advisor might be using Blue Vault not only to collect that performance information, but it sounds like even doing some product discovery. Like, you know, seeing private placement offerings in a sector that they didn't even know there, there would be one.
2: They should be. That's what I would be doing if I was an advisor.
1: <laughs> I'd want to know. I, well,
2: well, first of all, if you do your homework, then you're yeah. probably going to realize that there's a particular asset class that I might should be investing in right now uh, in, in contrast to others. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I'm also going to know who's, who, who's the better uh, investment managers that are offering and what are the different features of their offering? How do they differ from each other? For mm-hmm. example, I'm just throwing this out. Which which one has a lower fees? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that'd be one thing that I would I would be looking at. So now you can compare those things uh, through the database.
1: You know, one trend that we talked about earlier in this in this episode, some of these very large asset managers uh, coming into the space. Um, and not not exactly dominating but just you know some of these really big names when they enter space it's like everybody knows about it in the industry everybody yep. knows but also on the advisor side everybody knows so do you see how do you see that trend in reference to the smaller or the mid-sized sponsors and issuers cuz on the one hand it's more competition on the other hand, some of these big names that come in, it's almost like they might be legitimizing that product type in the minds of many RIAs. That has happened.
2: That has absolutely happened. My, my view on it is, is that a rising tide lifts all boats. And I've seen it. I've watched it with my own eyes. and I've seen that play out. So the larger uh, product sponsor has not come to the space and pushed others to the side. Mm. In fact, they've come to the space and they've got their uh, they they've got their loyal following. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think in in most ways, they have brought credibility to the space, which has helped the smaller players. Now, where they go raise the money exactly is like slight, is slightly different. So still today, your larger institutional players that come to the market, uh, they're mainly raising the money from family offices and uh, from the warehouse advisors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can talk about RIAs and certainly we're making strides. The industry is making strides there, but I don't believe that that's where the bulk of the money's coming from. I think it's coming from the warehouse advisors. We know that to some degree. Um, and then family offices, which are just large RIAs. Right. Uh, but everyone is making inroads with the RIA. What's been interesting to see Andy, is that the, the larger uh, players that have come to the market, the thought was is that they're they're going to get in with these independent broker dealers and they're just going to completely take over, and that has not happened. Um, it you know they're they're in and they're mm-hmm. doing okay, um, but I think that the smaller players are raising more capital, uh, in part because of the institutional players. You could argue that before these institutional players came to the space, for, for example, the non-trader reach space, you could argue that the alts world was was <laughs> not doing well.
1: Okay, yeah.
2: They they had had, uh, to your case earlier, that they had had, uh, you know, I think three or four of the top capital raise firms since 1990 uh, had gone through uh, performance problems mm-hmm. at, at one point or another, and people were just skeptical that a REIT could even work. It wasn't the REIT at all. It was the investment manager. Right. Um, and certainly there've also been tremendous improvements through the years, better quality investment manager, much lower fees, mm-hmm. um, that, that, you know, those two things pro- predominantly have created a much, much healthier and in, investment structure, investment performance. Uh, Why
1: why do you think that, what do you think has been the pressure on fees? Has it been, uh, you know, more information and transparency within the alternatives world just, just puts that competitive pressure or is it more just that macro trend of in the traditional investment world, you know, the Fidelities and the Vanguards. It's like, it's like I'm used to paying 10 basis points fees on investments, you know, um, or is it another factor?
2: I think it's it's multiple factors, but certainly, Uh, There's regulatory pressure, I -hmm. guess you could say, lack of a better word. So there's some regulatory pressure. There's performance pressure. Okay, so look, it's one thing when you have a high fee and you perform well. But the minute these high fee products don't perform well, then what's everybody going to do? They're going to blame it on the high fees. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, just like the, the Sunday afternoon quarterback situation. It may not have been his fault, but if they lost, it's his fault. Sure. Uh, It's one of those situations. But the the other issue was, um, you know, I think the media played a role in all of that as well. I think the media beat up uh, investment managers with products with higher fees. And I think it just over time, it takes its toll. Um, And advisors and again, if if you have the high fees and you perform, Everybody, nobody says anything.
1: The two and 20 is not a big deal if you hit the grand slam, right? That's with right. your fund. <laughs> That's
2: right. And you know, the interesting yeah. thing about that, it was just a few, I'll call them bad apples. It was just a few bad apples that underperformed. most non-traded REITs. And I guarantee you that most people don't know this Overwhelmingly, most non-traded REITs who have gone full cycle, given the money back, returned. Uh, a positive gain to investors, uh, annualized positive gain to their investors. Some of it extremely healthy. Okay, I think so. The they average, they pass
1: the the three rules of family office investing. They pass all three rules: don't lose money, don't lose money, and don't yeah. lose money.
2: I mean, it's literally just a handful of reads <laughs> who lost money. Sure, but but they're the bad apples. They they gave the whole market a, a kind of a bad name.
1: They're the ones you remember. That's for sure.
2: Yeah. But what has the, you know, the lemonade that we've made from those lemons is that overall fees have come down. Mm -hmm. They've been forced to, that's better for the investor. It's better for the advisor. It's better for the entire industry. More capital is being raised as a result of it. And I'll just get in one thing. One thing I want to make sure I say, Andy, that, that, uh, you know, Blue Vault, what what I used to say back in 09 and 10, uh, if, if Blue Vault has a role uh, to play in reporting performance and we cause a bad investment manager to have to leave the industry because of bad performance, that's, I hope that happens uh, because we, there's no there's no excuse for there to be a poor investment manager in this space uh, taking advantage of investors. And to, to to the extent that we played a role in pushing some, and we did, I know we did, we played a role in getting rid of those. So I, I don't know of a single poor quality investment manager remaining in the space. That doesn't mean they're going to all make money. It doesn't mean that, you know, all that. But I'm just saying the quality of the, of the investment manager is so much higher than it used to be. You couple that with the reduction in fees and you got a pretty pretty solid thing going right now.
1: It's just a better product for the investor.
2: It's a better product. And the only reason that the majority of advisors aren't using these products is the liquidity issue. That's that's it. They don't like the idea of putting money, even if it's just 5 or 10%. They don't like the idea of putting the client's money somewhere where they can't get to it. I, huh. I had an advisor tell me that last week
1: that he'd been burned and he's not going to do it again. <laughs> I mean, I, so, get, I get it. He, and, and and so I know Blue Vault. Obviously, a bi- a big part of what you do is in information gathering and your platform and publishing that information out to advisors. Uh, but Blue Vault also runs events, or at least an an annual event. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So it basically goes like this: We have a platform, and it's really an educational platform. Okay. So everything we do, it's about education. One of the of the prongs of the three. Prongs is our research, which is what we've been talking about. So, mm-hmm. research, fact based research, is an educational tool. Another educational tool that, that we have on that platform is uh, uh, something we call the advisor engagement program. And it's just simply where we talk about alternative investments. We talk about alternative investments in general, what they are, um, what their benefits are, what the risk, uh, risks are, but then we talk about individual structures. Uh, tax strategies, we talk about uh, different benefits and features and costs and fees and all those kinds of things mm-hmm. and about individual uh, investment managers as well what they do and why they do it what is their you know their differentiator they're your their unique uh, contributing factor to performance. so we do that but then that third prong like you just said is an annual event that we that we host. we've been doing it since 2015. Uh, we were we were uh, all set to do it in 2020, and the, the day before it started, we canceled it because of COVID, mm. uh, March 8th or 9th. I never will forget it. Mm. But we were due to be in Atlanta that particular year, and I tell people had we not canceled that event, we would have been in Atlanta the same week that the NBA season was canceled, M- MLB, uh, NCAA oh. men's tournament, basketball tournament was all canceled. So I think we made the wise decision, and but we, we we regrouped, and 60 days later we did a virtual event. We did the virtual event again in 21, and, and, and then earlier this year, 22. But now we're going back to a physical event, and we'll be in, in Atlanta at the Grand Hyatt in March. And uh, we we we, uh, we think we'll have by, by far the largest event that we've ever had there. There's just a lot more players in the space, and there's a lot more firm uh, – there are a lot more uh, uh, services firms vendors providing services to the marketplace as well. We call those internally alt tech. So it's fintech but with an Alts twist. So Okay, alt-tech. well,
1: yeah, I don't know if AltsDB would technically fall under that umbrella. We might, but are the who should attend the conference? Is it mainly for you know industry professionals or are we also talking about broker dealers or RIAs or or advisors? Advisors, attendance.
2: advisors, advisors should attend the event, including RIAs. In fact, we we uh, are trying to reach the RIA market more mm-hmm. and more. We we where we've always been is in the independent broker dealer market, sure. and a lot of those a lot of our subscribers are are affiliated with independent broker dealers, but more and more of them are are uh, are the from the what we call the true or independent RIA market. Sure. So advisors, but broker-dealers as well. We're going to have a combination. We'll probably have more advisors than we will broker-dealers, of course, but
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, those. And then there'll be investment managers. And then there's going to be these alt-tech uh, types of firms, those that that offer products and services that aren't investment uh, structures. Uh, there's a ton of those firms out there today uh, where 10 years ago, that was that was just not the case. It, they were in their baby stages uh, but now there's a maturity factor there, and uh, we hope Altz dB is going to be there, maybe as a uh, maybe as, as one of our media partners. I think we, you and I've talked about that before. So maybe yeah, I'm hoping that we can work something out in in that regard. Maybe even have you come and host some podcasts live uh, from uh, <laughs> uh, from Atlanta from the hotel. The you know, Hyatt Bucket.
1: That's Stacey. Honestly, it is one of my favorite things to do is is get out and about. And talk to sponsors as well as advisors and family offices in person. I mean, you know, I I, I love our virtual events; they're great. But it's just, you know, like you said, uh, to ten years ago, there was there was there was you know the ecosystem, the infrastructure, it barely existed. And fast forward to twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, and and what a world of difference! It's um very exciting industry uh, that that we're both yeah. blessed to be able to work in.
2: It is, and it's, and it's an important industry because as, as an advisor that I spoke with last week said, and he said you could find all the stuff on the internet, and of course, you know, he and I both, uh, you know, be the first ones to caution you about what you read and believe on the internet, but there there are um, there are uh, professional predictions that the market is going to underperform over mm. the next five to 10 years. So, um six and six and seven percent total returns, annualized returns might be about as good as, as a typical investor does if they're just in the marketplace. So I think that there's going to be more and more advisors who recognize that and and, and they're going to be uh, more excited about learning uh, about the, the, the vast array of alternative investments available to them mm-hmm. to utilize to diversify and even improve performance. And by the way, there's all kinds of analysis that you can point to, Andy. That incorporating real estate into a client's portfolio increases the total return and decreases the risk. So, one hundred percent. You 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 know that there's yeah. all kinds of analysis of that, and and why mm-hmm. people the masses don't understand that. I, there's I
1: there's a reason about. that yeah, there's a reason that you know largest endowments. And, oh. you know, dedicated family offices are, they don't have a 4% allocation to real estate. I mean, you're oh. talking about on a market cap basis, this is an asset class that, you know, so many of us are underweight, you know, even if you do own your own residence, you know, you, you have to look at oh, your yeah. portfolio. Oh yeah, a- absolutely.
2: And, and look, the endowments have a, they have a, um, uh, they have an advantage that the typical investor like you and me don't have. They have they have a lot of time. Mm-hmm. They have billion dollar portfolios. You can just do things more, uh, better. But there's got to be a reason. There's got to be something they know that the retail advisor and the retail investor don't know if they're allocating that much, uh, to alts strategies, real estate, that type of thing. And most advisors don't allocate anything, uh, to the alts market. So there's, there's, there's a disconnect somewhere.
1: Absolutely. And I think a great place to talk about that disconnect and learn more is at the upcoming summit. And for our listeners, I'll be sure to link to that event webpage where you can learn more and register as well as all the resources that we discussed. I'll be sure to link to those in our show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. And I want to remind our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to our show on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. So you can be sure to receive our new episodes as we release them. Stacy, thanks so much for coming on the program today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com you can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast and we'll be back soon with another episode